Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the author of Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. Uh, The book's author is Liliana Mason, and the book publisher is University of Chicago Press. I have the pleasure to have Liliana on the phone today. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for sharing the book uh, sharing some of your time to talk about it. So much interesting stuff in the book to talk about. Before we get to that, maybe you can just share a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I, uh, I'm an assistant professor of government and politics at the University of Maryland College Park. Um, I am uh, trained in political psychology. I got my PhD in 2013 from Stony Brook University. And, uh, and most of what I do is sort of combining, you know, some, some element of social psychology, sociology research with political science and political behavior work. Yeah, the, um, the book uh, is so incredibly timely, so in the moment. Uh, there are some terms that I think would be infor- important for us to just sort of get out there at the start. Um, because you know they have very some very specific meaning for what you're studying, and and they're not universal meaning. So maybe we could just kind of def- do a little definition before we get started with what you found in the book. Um, and and there are a couple terms that I thought you might uh, kind of offer us a working definition of, uh, including identity, mm-hmm. uh, social sorting, and in group bias. So those are three terms that that run throughout the book that that kind of matter and aren't. Uh, altogether obvious what you mean by them. So would you offer kind of a working definition of each? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, so when I talk about identity, I'm specifically talking about social identity based in social identity theory, which is uh, basically it's understanding um, part of yourself as, as you know, yourself as part of another group of people and having that, that group membership inform sort of how you think about yourself. And in fact, having your own self-concept connected to the status um, and well-being of the group itself. So that's the, the, ident- the idea of identity is this, uh, is this sort of very psychological connection to a group of people that you identify with, you know, to varying degrees. You can have a weak identification or a strong identification, um, but that identification is, is part of how you understand yourself and, and your place in the world. Great. What about social sorting? So social sorting is a term that I that I kind of made up because I couldn't find a, a, a concise way to talk about it without coming up with a term. So this, you know, we we've often talked about sorting in American politics. Generally, what that you know traditionally means is the the alignment between liberal attitudes and the Democratic Party and conservative attitudes and the Republican Party. So that's been our, our idea of partisan sorting has been Democrats are becoming liberal con- and Republicans are becoming conservative. What I've been seeing is actually that there is uh, another type of sorting going on in that Democrats are also becoming um, associated with certain social groups and Republicans are becoming associated with certain social groups. So in particular, uh, the Republican Party is associated with uh, being white, being Christian, 
uh, and being conservative as an identity, not necessarily in terms of issue positions. We can talk more about that in a, in a bit. Uh, and the Democratic Party is, is associated with uh, being non-white, non-Christian, uh, and, and liberal in general in, in, um, in identity. Now, social sorting wouldn't matter very much if not for uh, in-group bias. Uh, and there are many reasons why, but in-group bias is one of the reasons why the stakes sort of are high here. So what is in-group bias? So in-group bias is this uh, very kind of, you know, primal response that we have to feeling connected to a group of other people. And, uh, and so essentially when we are identified with a group, we almost automatically assess that group as being better than all of our, all the other groups, all of the outgroups. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that we hate the outgroups, but we just like our group the best. In the presence of conflict between our, our in-group and our out-groups, uh, we actually do start to dislike members of the out-group. Uh, but in general, in-group bias is, is, a, is a relatively uh, automatic process by which we automatically assume that our group is better than everybody else. Now, social sorting, um, even though you may have coined the term, I think would resonate with so many people because it seems to matter so much to our current political moment. Um, and as you just suggest and describe, um, we become more socially sorted over time. Um, I wonder, what are some of the indicators of this trend that you find most compelling? And, and also, what is the best theoretical explanation for why this has happened? Well, one way that I that I demonstrated in the book is just to look at the makeup of the two part, the social makeup of the two parties over time. Um, so, you know, what's what's the difference between the percentage of Democrats that are white and the percentage of Republicans that are white? And and you know, look at those differences um, in uh, the American National Election Studies surveys, uh, which we have from 1948 until today. Um, and essentially find that the differences, the social, the social differences between the parties have been growing. So in each year that I measure, which I, I sort of look at, you know, 1952, 1972, 1992, 2002, 2012, I keep seeing these increases in the, the, the social differences between the parties. So race is dividing the parties a lot more in 2012 than it was in 1952. And religion is dividing the parties a lot more in 2012 than it was in, in 1952, for instance. And, and part of the reason for this is, um, is, is elite cues. So a, a lot of these changes started happening after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And, uh, you know, where the, it became clearer which party was the party where white, fe- white people felt that they were, you know, this was their party, this was their group of people. Um, and, uh, and for non-white people, it became clear that the Democratic Party was the party that was re- sort of, you know, helping them and rooting for them. Uh, and then, uh, and then in, the, in the 80s, in the 1980s, uh, we also saw this re- growing relationship between the, the Christian right and the Republican Party to the extent that by the year 2000, um, sort of all of the all of the requests, all of the all of the um, the platform positions of the Christian right had been assimilated into the into the Republican Party platform officially. So it was this gradual sort of you know not necessarily coincidence, but these two sort of steps, one in terms of race and one in terms of religion, where we saw um, you know the parties kind of taking taking the stand of certain social groups. Now there's a. Um in chapter five, let me, let me just uh, ask you about chapter five, which is where you sort of delve into this ongoing debate about polarization. And, and you sort of dip into the debate between Alan Abramowitz and, and Morris Fiorina. 
And, and you write, um, and I'll quote, what this debate overlooks is the behavior, emotions, and actions of the electorate aside from their policy attitudes. I wonder if you'd maybe first set up the debate for us, um, where, where the conversation has been, and then explain a little bit about what you found uh, to address what has been missing. Yeah, that's that's really how this all started. Actually, this was you know the book project was originally my dissertation, and um, uh, you know I started started writing it in two thousand nine, and the you know what I was seeing in the in the debate that you know the contemporary at that time debate over polarization um, was really this argument between Fiorina and Abramowitz over whether or not the American public was polarized, and by polarized, both of them meant that Americans disagreed with each other and were becoming increasingly extreme in their, in their issue positions. And they would sort of go back and forth um, with, you know, a, you know, a number of descriptive statistics and, and, you know, pointing at different things for different arguments. But it seemed to me as I was reading this that, that you know, maybe it doesn't really matter whether or not we disagree so much if we're acting like we hate each other all the time. There has to be something going on in in the electorate. It was it was clear even in 2009 that there's something happening in the electorate where Democrats and Republicans really dislike each other. And and so maybe we should be focused not on, you know, the degree to which our issue positions are um are polarized from each other, but really what is driving us to dislike one another? And that's where I got into, you know, using the social identity theory to explain, okay, what are the basic, the most basic ways that groups hate each other? Why do groups hate each other in sort of the most, um, before, before, you know, high level policy thinking, uh, what is, how do we normally explain it when, when one group of people hates another group of people? It's not always because, you know, they disagree about tax levels. And so that's really how I got started in, into trying to figure this out is let's take a step back. Let's understand polarization maybe as something that's much more emotional and psychological uh, and not quite as logical as their debate was, was focusing on. And, and what do you find? Uh, what, what are the emotional and, or psychological indicators that, that tell us that this is um, either more than just policy differences um, and is maybe something um, something uh, different in in the ways that you just described. Yeah, so I, I talk about a couple of really uh, sort of classic experiments in in social psychology, looking trying to trying to understand how groups um, hate each other. And a lot of this research really came out of World War II, trying you know uh, essentially ex- trying to explain what happened, what was going on. Um, with Hitler in World War II, and how could you get you know a group of people to hate another group of people so severely? And there was a lot of work in social psychology in the fifties, sixties, and seventies trying to figure this out. And and one of the people who really did this and developed social identity theory was Henri Tajfel, who um, had actually been captured by he was a Polish Jew who had been captured by Nazi um, soldiers and and imprisoned for six years and came out of it trying to figure out how, you know, what is happening inside people's brains that this happens. And he did these experiments called minimal group paradigm experiments, which just briefly uh, essentially gave people, you know, completely uh, imaginary identities. So he had people look at a, a bunch of dots on a screen and he told them to estimate how many dots. And then he randomly told people, you know, you're an overestimator or you're an underestimator. And then he asked them to allocate money in a variety of other 
tests. And what he consistently found was not only did people give more money to their in-group, but they were willing to sacrifice money in order to win. So my example is, you know, either everybody in this experiment can get $5 or your in-group will get four, but your out-group will get three. And, And over and over, he kept finding that people were willing to sacrifice in order to get the victory. It was the winning that was more important to them than this sort of greater good scenario where everyone gets the most. So there's an an intrinsic value to winning on a very, very basic level that has nothing to do with policy outcomes, legislation, really anything rational at all. It's just this sense that people want to feel victorious and they're they're willing to to sacrifice for that. You set up an, um, an experiment in chapter six uh, that is both an interesting experiment and has some very surprising results um, that relates to this. Uh, I wonder if you could describe what what your experiment did, the way you collected these data, and what was so, so surprising about the results that you found. Right. So, so in this experiment, this was um, I actually this was part of research that I did with Leonie Huddy and Lena Arroway, and we and we looked at. Um, we gave people sort of partisan messages that uh, either threatened or reassured them about the outcome of an, an upcoming election. And, um, and we either threatened or reassured them about their party winning or losing the election with no policy content whatsoever, or we gave them a message about their, their sort of most central issue positions being, you know, being enacted or not based on the outcome of the election. And what we found was that when we, when we threatened or reassured someone about the status of their party, they reacted with a lot more emotion. So if there was a threat, they were much more angry. And if there was a, 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 you know, a message of reassurance, they were much more happy and proud and enthusiastic. Um, then if we talked to them about the policy positions themselves. And so just saying, you know, Democrats are going to win the election makes people really happy, but saying... We're going to, you know, make sure that, that, you know, healthcare is assured for all people and, um, you know, women can choose what to do with their bodies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, the, the policy positions themselves didn't make people as, as happy or as angry as the, the idea of their party winning or losing. And, and is, that, is that because um, an assumption made that if your party wins, then you get the, the spoils are the policy victories? Or that there is a um, uh, ambivalence uh, about policy um, in in this kind of way. What what squares uh, this this seemingly unusual finding? So the way that I think about it, and I think is a helpful way to think about it, is as a as a and you've heard this recently a lot, I'm sure, as a, as a sports analogy, right? So when you watch the Super Bowl and your team is in it, um, you're not you're very excited if they win, and you're really upset if they lose. But that's not because you're going to get something out of it after the Super Bowl is over, right? It's not because once your team wins the Super Bowl, they go off and legislate something that you need to, you know, to get. Uh, it's, the, it's the winning part that is the thing that's driving your emotional response. And, and so very similarly, this, you know, this idea of winning, um, you know, people after an election are are really upset about the outcome if they lose, and they're really happy about it if they win. And it's it, it can be explained with this with this sort of sports type mentality very well, um, without necessarily even engaging them in a thought process about what's going to happen next, 
there is, you know, there's a trophy and then that's the end. You title one of the final chapters in the book, Activism for the Wrong Reasons. Uh, this is paradoxical because we've come to assume that activism is almost by definition a, a good thing. Uh, when is activism done for the wrong reasons and, and how does this relate to uh, social identity and also also social sorting? So, right. This is, this is one of the things. So in continuing this sports analogy, uh, one of the things that happens with social sorting is that, um, you know, it's essentially saying maybe the outcome of the Super Bowl is also going to determine um, which, which team wins, you know, which, which basketball and hockey and, uh, and any other team that you're a fan of, the outcome of the Super Bowl determines what which team wins all of those other things as well. So you're not just playing the Super Bowl for your football team, you're playing it for a whole bunch of different teams. That's sort of the psychological thing that happens with our, um, when we have all these different identities linked to our party identity is that we sort of have a lot more identity to defend in every competition. And, and so what we see coming out of the last experiment was that people get really angry and really excited about about victory when they have all of this sort of um, status to defend, all of these group status to defend. And one thing that we know uh, from the from the psychology literature is that emotions like anger and enthusiasm, we call those approach emotions. So they tend to drive people into action. And uh, as opposed to something like fear or anxiety, which tends to make people kind of sit down and not participate. And, and so essentially what we're seeing is with every electoral threat, people are being made very emotionally excited, and then that emotion is driving them to take action. It, and it's not necessarily that they're taking action because of policy content preferences. Uh, it can also just be that they're taking action because they just want to win. And, and they'll vote for their team almost no matter what the team does. So when you have this sort of unthinking participation um, that's driven by emotional responses and also by, by bias, um, you know, knowing that your team is the best is this, you know, again, very sort of deep response that we have to being identified with a team. And, and when, when, we, when we participate because we are prejudiced on behalf of our own group and we don't like the out group and we're participating because it feels really good to win, then we're not necessarily participating in order to you know, make sure that the, that the greater good is uh, protected in our, in our government and that we're legislating responsibly. Now, in trying to make sense of, of this, um, you really have to go back to some, one of the things that you mentioned early in the book, which was a concern in the, the mid-20th century about unsorted parties and, and parties that couldn't be differentiated. Um, and in so many ways, that that is not the not the position we are in today. I wonder if you could, you know, sort of step back and make some sense of what you found in the book, and and put this kind of into the context of of um, of uh, phenomena like Donald Trump and and uh, the election in two thousand eighteen and so forth. How how does this ultimately matter? Is this something that you anticipate changing? Should it change? Um, help us make a little more sense of this. Well, so this is, we're, you know, we're ultimately at the, you know, kind of an end point of this very long process of essentially realignment um, between the two parties, where there were a lot of Southern conservative Democrats who were very upset about civil rights legislation, but, but our partisanship is so strong and so sticky that, that they, they couldn't just become Republicans. They were Southern Democrats. The idea 
of identifying as a Republican was anathema to them. And so it took a very long time sort of gradually stepping back, sometimes voting with Republicans, sometimes voting for Republicans, um, but still calling yourself a Democrat, maybe moving to independent. And then the next generation could go from independent to Republican. So it, it took really a generation for this realignment to occur. And, and over that period of time, during that period, we had a lot of cross-cutting identities because it wasn't really clear to a lot of people which party they belonged with. And, and over time, those cues became a lot more um, clear as the parties became um, you know, socially distinct from, from one another in a very visible and very clear way. And ultimately, it's, you know, the, the idea that that was a really good time, right, that the 60s and 70s were like a perfect time in American history is not the argument that I'm trying to make, because in fact, there were plenty of social, there's plenty of social disruption. Um, and, and there were plenty of social divides. It's just that those divides were not aligned along partisan lines. So we couldn't vote for our racial outgroup, or against our racial outgroup, right? We couldn't, there was no party to vote for that was the party of, um, of, you know, atheists. There was no party to vote for that um, was the party just for white people. And, and now we have this very, very clear divide where if you are a liberal atheist, you're going to vote for Democrats, almost certainly. And if you are an evangelical white person, you're going to vote for Republicans, almost certainly. And so there is a much, it's a much easier thing to see now uh, but it also makes us much more rigid in our voting patterns. So there's, there, we're a lot less free to be able to um, es essentially hold parties accountable when they do things that we don't really approve of. Yeah, the, the book, again, is Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. Uh, the author who you've been listening to is Liliana Mason. The book publisher is University of Chicago Press. There's so much more interesting stuff in the book. Um, I, I I uh, want to thank you for your time today and thanks for sharing the book. Um, this was great. Thanks so much for having me. 